Tarry here, where the stories never grow old, and you hear something new every time they are told, and it comes clear. So tarry here, where it doesn't matter your age, and when we gather round the table, we all take the stage year after year. So tarry here. To the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at EnlightenRadio.org. I am Fanny Crawford. And I am Stash Ziokowski. <laughs> and our theme today on Monday, February 5th, is Lighter Hearts. And I'm looking forward to our show today, Stash. I have a, um, some stuff for, for Black History Month, uplifting stuff, and some. Uh, and a love story. I'm going to do a version of uh, Gift of the Magi. That'll be my second story. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's one of my favorites. And I understand that you're doing something special today, too. Well, I'm just going to do some stories from Poland. That's pretty special. I think so. I have a great fondness for the homeland of my ancestors. Right. One of my favorite things I ever did in my whole life, thanks to my darling wife, is in 2016, we went to Poland for 12, 14 days. And it was just absolutely wonderful. It's the only place I've ever visited where on the last day, I honestly could have said, I don't want to go. I want, I want to stay mm -hmm. here. I, I just loved every bit of it. it was, That's wonderful. It was, was I felt so good there, you know, and I, I'm sure it's just an emotional thing for some, especially someone like me, who I am easily touched by things that I care about. Um, I truly felt at home there. You know, I will look forward to hearing more about that today. Yes. I did want to thank Andy Offit-Irwin for his opening the show with Terry here, his wonderful ballad about storytelling. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, that's true. That is wonderful for him to do that. I want to tell you something about storytelling, just a connection with storytelling. This is, I, I'm going to mention speak, but um, I was in a coffee shop on Saturday. Terry and I went out to get coffee at the coffee at the community cup here in, in uh, Martinsburg which is a really nice place. It's open on Saturdays. It's open during the week too, but it's open on Saturday, Saturday from eight in the morning till late at night. And um, it's a nice place where people could just come in, get a cup of coffee, a donuts, not really donuts, but stuff, stuff like that, you know, a snack and things and, and food. And they also have a book exchange. They have hundreds of books along, lined along one wall and uh, you can pick up a book and, Take it with you, and then after you finish reading, bring it back. It's just like one of those little local library things, but no, no cards or anything like that. And this anyway, in Martins, met, Martinsburg? Martinsburg. Martinsburg, okay. Yeah, just one block off, one block on Burke, on Burke Street, uh, one block off of King. Okay. And um, it's a really nice place, run by uh, some nice people. And um, they have different events there and stuff. Anyway, I, uh, there was a man that, that um, 
commented about my hat, you know, oh. the Pol Polish hat I wear and everything. And we, we talked and then we found out that we live in the same neighborhood, just four blocks apart. And um, we were, then when we sat down, my, my wife and I and this man named John, was, we talked and he told us <clears throat> he was a teacher um, at, Je at the Jefferson School and <clears throat> told us that he had uh, recently had a, uh, they had a storyteller there. And he started talking about it, and I said, "What, what was the, what was the person's name?" He said, "Oh, oh I can't." I don't know. I, and I said, "Well, sounds like from how you described him, uh, it must be Adam Booth." And he said, "That's right." And I said, "Well, good. That's wonderful because he spoke glowingly about Adam. It was for young children, and uh, about how Adam had mesmerized the uh, audience and and shared with the audience, not not just talked." at them but engaged with them and he was very impressed and um anyway so it was, it was a neat thing nice little neighborhood thing in our home in our where we live now yeah and, i wish i had been there at jefferson school that would have been fun yeah right and you would have enjoyed being at the community cup too well i'm going to try to check it out because yeah. i do come to martinsburg now and again yes and I have, I have a gardening friend who's there. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So, so uh, stories in the round? Stories in the round. No Coming new up. news. I, the same news I had last time is that I have, I think I have three tellers lined up. Well, four, if you count me. <laughs> four, four tellers lined up for the season. And I need to get in gear so I can get the rest um, lined up, but I'm getting excited. Okay. Good, good folks coming. Do Do I know any of them? Yeah, you no, know, but I don't have signed contracts from them, so I'm not okay. announcing it. How about this? I promise that that within two weeks I will have some signed contracts. All right. Good. Good. All right. So um, February 13th, Tuesday. Speak Story Series, 12th year begins, and it will start with Gail Ross. Gail All Ross right. is, is a Cherokee, a member of the Cherokee Nation, mm -hmm. and she is the direct descendant of John Ross, who was the leader of the Cherokee Nation during the Trail of Tears, part of our country's, one of our country's black marks against the Native Americans. And in March, Peter Cook was a deaf storyteller and a wonderful person. I know you've heard him and I have heard yeah, him. Yeah, he's wonderful. And then in April, Antonio Roja. And if you've never heard him, you should make it a point to have you. Oh, I've heard him several times. He's, yes. he's pretty amazing. He is amazing. Spellbinding, I, 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 whenever I've seen him. Anyway. Our 12th season of Stories in the Round, and everybody should go to speakstoryseries.com and check out the site, and you can get your season tickets there, make a donation if you would like, and you can also join in. You could even I join the group. I need to get my tickets. I haven't done it. Whoa. Yeah. You're behind times. I am, and you might be sold out by the time we get there. They don't. They do. They do not sell out season I know. tickets. <laughs> and it's at the community club 
in Shepherdstown. And guaranteed excellent performance place. And they, uh, Speaks Story Series has hired a professional to run the audio, video, everything, so that if you join us through Zoom, you will have a good experience. I have always had a good, I've never had a bad experience with, with Speak. Good. I, I think it's a, I mean, I know it's been rough for the people behind the scenes with the different venues, but I have loved all of it. And, and the Community Club is a great, great venue. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I, I've got, I got to perform there. I know. I know. <laughs> that was a nice place to perform. Yeah, so. Okay. Well, how about if I if I start us out? Yeah. Um, oh yes, that would be wonderful. Okay, I'm so a little I slow found, this morning. I found this beautiful little book called Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Black Boy" by Tony Medina and thirteen other um, poets and visual artists, and I I am just really enjoying reading it. And I thought we need a little bit of uplift in these difficult times. Um, and especially when I'm in the middle of studying black history for Black History Month, this is a reminder of all the wonderful things that uh, our black community brings to us. So this is the introduction to the book and it's a poem by Tony Medina. And, uh, after I read the poem, I'll tell you a little bit more about Tony Medina himself. Black boys scrape their knees. They bleed. Black boys cry, <coughs> scream. They tackle life like air, gliding on wind, basking in a breeze. Black boys sit beneath trees, inhale fresh cut grass and dream. Black boys play with building blocks, are fascinated by clocks cradle skateboards under their arms. Black boys love basketball and books, toss footballs and leaf through pages lost in stories and myths. Black boys love comic books and superheroes, are heroes to little sisters and brothers. Black boys love popcorn and watching movies, love their grandmas and grandpas. Black boys hug and kiss their moms and emulate their dads. Black boys wear their daddy's shoes and ties, smear shaving cream on their smooth faces, giggling in steamy mirrors. Black boys shine bright in sunlight, build snowmen and have snowball fights. Black boys study the stars, looking through telescopes, lie on their backs in tall grass, staring at the blanket of blue sky, at all the eyes smiling and twinkling down on them. Black boys like to hum and drum, bebop, hip hop, like to dance and sing, jazz and scream. Black boys are three dimensions of beauty. Black boys go to church, ride buses, go to school, sit on stoops, fly kites, shoot hoops. Black boys like to sit in their quiet and think about things. Black boys are made of flesh, not clay. Black boys have bones and blood and feelings. Black boys have minds that thrive with ideas like bees around a hive. 
Black boys are alive with wonder and possibility, with hopes and dreams. Black boys be bouquets of tanka bunched up like flowers. They be paint blotched into a myriad of colors across the canvases of our hearts. We celebrate their preciousness and creativity. We cherish their lives. Isn't that a wonderful poem? Yes, who wrote that? Tony Medina. And Tony Medina is quite a guy himself. He's a two-time winner of the Patterson Prize for Books for Young People. He's the author editor of 19 books for adults and young readers. He's a professor of creative writing at Howard University. He's received the Langston Hughes Society Award, the first African Voices Literary Award and was nominated for Pushcart Prizes for his poems. J. Carr Press recently published his anthology, Resisting Arrest, Poems to Stretch the Sky. And he has a graphic novel, novel I Am Alfonso Jones. That was in 2017. And you can go to TonyMedina.org M-E-D-I-N-A, well, T-O-N-Y-M-E-D-I-N-A dot org to learn lots more about him. And in this collection of poems and art, there are just a couple more real short poems that I want to read to you. This first one's called Street Corner Prophet by Brianna McCarthy. Dreadlock, halo crown, Jesus show up everywhere in a black parka. Here in Anacostia, winter corners, sacred suns. And there's a beautiful painting attached to that one. And this might be my favorite, well, my second favorite poem in this book. <laughs> it's called Athletes Broke Bus Blues. Know how many times I done missed this broke down bus, hardly catch my breath running as fast as can be, wave at this bus leaving me. That's by R. Gregory Christie. And the last one I'm gonna read by Javaka Steptoe, Cat at the Curb. And it has a lovely painting. Well, I think this is probably a pastel or a chalkwork piece, illustration. Sandwiched between curb and black radial tire, a cat with nine lives, not yet spent, contemplates life, springtime days bunched up like grass. That's from a volume called 13 Ways of Looking at a Black Boy by Tony Medina and 13 other artists. Oh. And when was, when was that written, do you know? The publication date is 2018. Wow. I'm guessing the poems might not have been all written at the same time. <clears throat> all right. But it's copyright 2018. Wow. It's a little wow. book. Yeah, I see. That's what that's what I have today. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have a little. This is gonna be a, a, a twist or a turn or something like that. But 
this is a story for, from um, Poland. Um, and this is about the feelings of the heart, about love for the country, love for the people. The title of this is Princess Wanda's Story. For many, many years, the city of Krakow developed, grew in strength, and became beautiful. But as usually happens in history, a gloomy time came again one day, casting its dark and threatening shadow on Krakow's happiness. It all happened during the reign of Princess Wanda. Prince Krak's young and pretty granddaughter. She held the scepter strongly in her fine and delicate hand and her rule over the country was just and wise. No wonder therefore that her subjects respected and loved her dearly while the wandering poets and singers praised her wisdom and beauty in song and verse. <clears throat> Excuse me, however, there was one worry which kept the noblemen and Wanda's advisors from sleeping soundly. The princess was determined to rule the country alone and would not even hear of getting married. Many a noble foreign prince and knight tried to win her art and brought costly gifts for her to, to Vavel Castle. Wanda, however, would send them all away, insisting that she was wed to Krakow and to her country. With regret did the unfortunate suitors leave the city situated upon the Vistula, because any man who saw Wanda's fair face even once could never forget her. Among those rejected uh, suitors was a German prince, Radiger. His pride did not let him accept her refusal, so he decided to force Wanda to marry him. Thus he sent his envoys to Vavel Castle. Her task was to explain the matter to the princess, which they did by means of a very meaningful gesture. On their Lord's behalf, they simply presented to her a precious ring and a sharp naked sword. And thus the Krakowian princess faced a choice which was to determine her subjects and her own fate. Still, she did not hesitate even for a moment. A war in defense of her country seemed to to her a much better solution than allowing a foreigner to come to the throne. Therefore, she put on the armor of her famous grandfather, Crack, and led her faithful knights to meet the army under the command of Rüdiger. Long and bloody were the battles they fought as the revengeful prince had the support of other foreign lords. Yet the gods were favorable towards the party which were fighting the war out out of love for their country. And so it was that Wanda and her knights were on the side to whom the final victory was granted. In a halo of glory did the princess return to Valville Castle and on the way she was solemnly and joyfully welcomed by her subjects who gathered round the castle hill. The roads were covered with the most beautiful flowers for her and the people cheered and called out her name. This great happiness was only disturbed by the memory of the old custom which required the sacrifice of human life to the gods for delivering the country from invaders or from some other serious misfortune. Nobody doubted that the princess would like to observe the custom and that she would give her own life away. Next morning at dawn, 
and the whole city was still sleeping soundly, Wanda finished her thankful prayers in which she had been immersed all night long. She went to the walls surrounding the castle with a long, sorrowful glance. She said goodbye to her beloved city and threw herself into the waters of the Vistula. The train of her robe flapped in the air, resembling the wings of a white bird. A moment later, the azure waters of the river closed over the princess. On the following day, the Vistula softly put the body of the beloved princess on a sandy bank not far from the castle and thus returned her to the subjects. The orphaned nation, mourning of Rwanda's death, built her a mighty burial mound, which has survived till today, as well as preserving her memory in the words of legends and in the verses of folk songs. Holy cow! That's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing I, story. I thought you might like that. Oh, what? what? Century from, was that? That's from long ago, before Poland was considered a Catholic country, and over the years, Poland has uh, was. Uh, I, I would I would say it's still considered a Catholic country. However, it's been under communist rule. It's been under the rule of Russia. It's been under the rule of many invaders over the years, and many, many, many. Years ago, before Christianity actually traveled to that part of the world and became entrenched, um, Poland was a fairly medieval place, but often, but always ruled ever for well over a millennium, ruled by um, kings or queens. And in fact, Poland's the only country I know of that for a while, for almost two centuries, Poland elected their king. Back wow. in the, ah. back in in the sixteenth uh, century to the eighteenth century, something like that, and um, it was kind of interesting. Anyway, yeah. I, I like that story. I came across it. I, I have a lovely book that was given to me as a present from one of my relatives of legendary Krakow. And in 2016, uh, Terry and I flew, Terry and I went to Poland. We didn't fly ourselves, we were on the plane. And we uh, actually spent some time in Krakow. And it was a wonderful place. So we enjoyed our trip there very much. Wow. Oh. I'm overwhelmed. That was just wonderful stuff. Yeah. Wait till you hear <laughs> the next one. <laughs> so. Do you want to do another one now? Or do you, or? Well, yes, let me do this, this next one because it has to do with Krakow <laughs> and it has to do with Valvel Castle, which I, I, I got to go to, walk through, walk around, read a, read a wonderful plaque that is legendary there. So, um, and it was on a beautiful day. It was just a perfect scene. After a long period of peace and happiness in Crack's country, some trouble came about in the area near the castle hill. The shepherds who watched over their cattle and sheep grazing on the fertile meadows 
situated on the banks of the Vistula River, had problems gathering their animals together in the evening. When the time came to take them home, usually several animals were missing. A real feeling of panic struck the city. However, when people started vanishing in the same mysterious and unexplained way, it happened again and again that a person who went alone to the river to fetch some water would not come back home and may never be heard of again. For quite a long time, nobody could come up with a satisfactory explanation of these strange events. Till one day, just by chance, some light was cast upon the matter. An apprentice to one of the basket makers from Krakow went to the Vistula to gather some twigs and branches to use in his work. In his search for the best ones, he he roamed as far as the foot of Vavel Hill, where the boggy river bank was overgrown with particularly beautiful willow bushes. He made his way through their thicket and broke off the longest and most flexible twigs. Suddenly, the bushes thinned out, and the boy beheld a most frightening sight. On a small, stony stretch of the riverbank, there were visible heaps of white bones, and a bit further on, in the steep wall of the Vavel Rock, there appeared a black opening, which must have obviously led to some cave. Not far from this area, and the entrance Warming itself in the sunshine, there was lying an immense dragon of terrible appearance. Its body was covered with green and yellow scales, and a row of sharp thorns protruded from its back. From its paws, which in size resembled the trunks of young oak trees, grew out mighty crooked claws. The appearance was gripped by such fear, excuse me, the apprentice was gripped by such fear that for a moment he stood as if petrified, staring at the beast, his eyes almost popping out of his head. Then all of a sudden the dragon gave a mighty yawn and spitting fire and smoke, it showed a mouthful of huge fangs. The boy's strength returned to him and forgetting his twigs, he started running for his life. News about the discovery spread quickly all over the area and reached the prince himself. Thus, Crack summoned the youngster and had him tell the story of what he had seen. Then he held a meeting with his advisors and with his most valiant knights. They engaged in a hot dispute as to what to do. A number of theories and suppositions were produced concerning the question as to how the dragon had come to Krakow. Some people maintained that the river current had brought it along. Others insisted that the beast had emerged from the very core of the earth. The theory was supposedly supported by the sudden appearance of that mysterious cave in the rock of Vavel Hill. As regards one issue, however, there was no disagreement. Everybody agreed that the man-eating monster should be slain as soon as possible. So when the following day at dawn, obeying Crack's orders, three knights, famous for their courage, went to the dragon's dwelling. The prince and his court awaited their return till late at night, but in vain. The next day, when it became quite clear what fate had befallen the knights, Crack sent out his heralds all over the country to warn the people of the danger they were in and to announce that the brave person who could free the city from the dragon, no matter if he was a knight or belonged to the common folk, would be generally rewarded, generously rewarded. 
The prize consisted of marrying the pretty princess and receiving a half of Crack's realm. The news was quickly circulated in the area and it also reached the attention of people in neighboring countries. Soon, therefore, numerous princes and knights eager to face the dragon started pouring into Krakow. They were attracted not only by the princely rewards, but also by the thought of the fame and honors which would come to them if they were able to kill the dragon. Alas, none were successful. Most of them lost their lives in the uneven combat with the monster, and only very few survived. Thus, Prince Crack decided to fight the dragon himself. He ordered his court armor to furnish him with the armor made of the hardest steel. He also chose the longest and sharpest sword from his armory. However, the preparations for the fight were interrupted by one of the courtiers, who came in and announced to the prince that some unknown, humble-looking youngster insisted on seeing him. Crack ordered him in and was quite astonished to see a teenage, fair-haired boy of serene countenance. The newcomer made an awkward bow and declared that although he was only a shoemaker, he had invented a way to slay the dragon. He only asked the prince to give him a large lamb, and as soon as he got one, he went about putting his plan into practice. First, he killed the animal, took off its skin, filled it with a mixture of sulfur and tar, and then he nicely sewed the skin back again. When dusk had fallen, he went near the dragon's cave and put the stuffed lamb in front of it. In the morning, when the first beams of the rising sun appeared in the sky, the dwellers of the city and its surrounds were woken up by the sound of a mighty explosion. It was the sound of the dragon who had greedily eaten the bait. The sulfur which was in it had started burning his insides like fire. So in order to quench this painful thirst, the beast had gone to the Vistula and drunk so much water that it had loudly burst and he died. In this way, the city was liberated from the dragon and its inhabitants were filled with joy and admiration for the crafty shoemaker. The prince kept his promise and soon the magnificent wedding of his daughter and the dragon killer took place. During the celebration, the young couple made a thanksgiving sacrifice to the Vistula throwing many a jewel into its waters. The river accepted the precious gifts and never again did any monster interfere with the peace and happiness of the dwellers of the Krakow. The cave in which the dragon once lived, today commonly known as the Dragon's Cave, can still be seen in the southwestern part of the Vavel Hill. And I got to go and see that and stand below it and look up into that opening. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and that story appears in a number of, of <clears throat> books from Poland about the and and different versions. Some of the, some of the times the boy is very young, and, and you know others he's a teenager. So that's, that's wonderful. A, yeah. <laughs> It was really great to be, when we were in Poland, to be in the place where they had stories about the place that were ancient stories. Yeah. To be able to see the place, you know, so. Um, too bad they didn't have any rem remnants of the dragon. But. 
relics. Yeah. They had one other thing that we did uh, just happened popped on my head that gave me a great memory. There was a wall in one of the places in Poland, along near along the river, where you you can you cannot stand with your back against the wall, flat against the wall. Why? Because you'll fall over. And at first I thought that's silly. That doesn't, that didn't look that that weird, you know. And I, <laughs> of course, I was among a whole bunch of other people, you know, <laughs> trying it. Whoa! <laughs> Couldn't do it. <laughs> it was very, it was very interesting. So it looks like it's a perpendicular wall, but it's not. No, and and it looks like it's a little bit off offline. However, it's enough offline that you cannot lean. You cannot lean, stand with your heels against the wall and your back against the wall. Huh. You know, I guess, I guess maybe if you had an anchor on your bottom. <laughs> and that's also in your Krakow? Um, that, I, I think it was in the same place, in the same area. Mm. Yeah. But... <laughs> And I'm not positive of that. I just remember it stuck in my mind about it was, and it was funny to see a lot of people trying it. <laughs> there were a lot of skeptics like me. Oh, I could do that, you know. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't fall on my face. <laughs> That's a great story. Okay, well, I want to tell our listeners that, <laughs> odd as it may seem, you are listening to the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at enlightenradio.org. <clears throat> our theme today is lighter hearts. And <clears throat> so far we've had one uh, book of poetry for Black History Month and some wonderful, wonderful stories from Stasz from Poland, uh, near and dear to his heart. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I'm Fanny Crawford. And I'm Stasz the Okowski. <laughs> I guess. We're going to continue. Do you have something else to share? No, I, I'm looking forward to your story. I do have another story, but I, I'm looking for. I'll keep it as a, if we need one at the end, a short one. Okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your story. All right. I'm ready. Um, okay. So this is from the great writer, O. Henry. And this is probably his most famous story, The Gift of the Magi. One dollar and 87 cents. That was all. 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times, Della counted. One dollar and 87 cents. The next day was Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did that. Which calls up the moral reflection that life is made of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. Barely furnished flat, $8 per week. In the vestibule below, 
was a letter box into which no letter would go, an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining was a lettered card, Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung during a former period of prosperity when its professor was being paid, but when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as if thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home to the flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the last of her powder. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day. She had only $1.87 with which to buy her gym a present. She'd been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. $1.87 to buy a present for her gym. Many a happy hour she'd spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you've seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. And suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass, eyes shining brilliantly, but her face had suddenly lost its color. Quickly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hang how Della would have let her hang, hair hang out the window someday to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. Now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade, reaching below her knee, almost a garment. Then she did it up again nervously. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. 
Then on went her old brown jacket and old brown hat with a whirl of skirts and the brilliant sparkle in her eyes. She fluttered out the door and down to the street. She stopped before the sign. Madame Sophroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran, panting to Madame, large and chilly. Will you buy my hair, asked Della. Take your hat off and let's have a sight of it, said Madame. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. And the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings as she ransacked stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores. She had turned all of them inside out. A platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by extraneous ornamentation, as all good things do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. Quietness and value like her Jim. The description applied to both. $21 they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason, found her curling irons, lit the gas, and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. In 40 minutes, her head was covered with the tiny, close-lying curls of a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror carefully and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me before he takes a second look, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But, oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? By seven o'clock, coffee was made and the frying pan on the back of the stove hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della lobbled, doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door. When she heard his step on the stair of the first flight, she whispered, making me think I'm still pretty. The door opened. Jim stepped in, looking thin and very serious. Poor fellow, only 22 years and burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and was without gloves. He closed the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed on Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read. It terrified her, not anger, surprise, disapproval, horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had prepared for. He simply stared at her with a peculiar expression on his face.
Della wriggled off the table. Jim, Jim, darling, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. It grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? Asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not yet arrived at that fact, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. And then, you say your hair's gone, said with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it. It's sold and gone. It's Christmas Eve. It went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Jim seemed to wake then, enfolding his Della. For 10 seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year. What is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim threw a package upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or shampoo that could make me love you any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going first. Nimble fingers toward the string and paper. Then an ecstatic scream of joy, followed by hysterical tears requiring the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the flat, for there lay the combs, beautiful combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped for long in a Broadway window, beautiful, pure tortoise shell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers. But the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. She hugged them to her and at length was able to look up with a smile and say, my hair grows so fast, Jim. Then leapt up with a, oh, oh, oh for, for Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on the chain. But Jim tumbled down on the couch, put his hands under the back of his head, and smiled. 
Dell, let's put our Christmas presents away now and keep them a while. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents and their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. I have here lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. A last word to the wise of these days. Let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Everywhere, they are the wisest. They are the magi. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, no, you're not. There you are. No, I turned, <laughs> I, I unmuted myself as soon as I knew you were going to finish. <laughs> That I was wonderful. Your, your hands clapping. Thank you. I, I, that story makes me cheer up every time. <laughs> I I just, it it took me, uh, it took me probably 10 years before I had the courage to tell that story. I love that story. And oh, I, you should tell it. Oh, I have told it. I told it a couple of times. Well, it took me a while to tell it in, in, um, you know, I, I think I, Actually, I think I was, I believe I was living in Pittsburgh the first time I told it. And I told it at a meeting of the uh, guild that I joined in Pittsburgh. And um, the, uh, I'd gone to a number of meetings there. And, and what, meetings were always fun. We tried different stories and just listen stuff in that and there, there was one guy there who was a, who was a lawyer and um, um i don't know let's see when i don't want to i don't want to say anything wrong but he he was a bit uh, uh, um let's see what the expression is oh he was a bit of full of himself <laughs> and and and, not, and and i and i hesitate to say that because i've been told that about myself sometimes and <laughs> You know, and I guess, and I, and I guess anybody who's ever had any success at anything, uh, moments after the success, or like within the next day, they tend to be a bit full of themselves. If, it, if it, you know, and and I know as a, as a coach and as a teacher, I experienced that feeling a couple times, and I was reminded that that I was being a bit full of myself. So. I knew what it meant. Um, and I tried to play that down, even though it's hard to do that when you're feeling really good. <laughs> but this guy, this guy took it to the nth degree in any way, in many ways. This one particular Monday night, um, it was, and it was always, a, it was always a, a bit of a chore to get to this meeting because it was about 45 minutes away on the highway. And I had to go to another area and all but I, we got there and um, talking to Mary, who is the person who ran it. She was the librarian there and she ran the, the program. She was a wonderful, wonderful 
children's storyteller. Boy, when when she would tell children's stories, she would tell practice her stories, and I attended and I saw her perform many, many times. Every time she would tell a story, I felt like I should be kneeling in front of her. I felt like I should, or sitting in front of her. I felt just like, uh, you know, a, a six or seven-year-old Stash, because she, she was so wonderful. She would just transform and, and become something special, as she told. And anyway, um, that night I had decided that I would practice the gift of the Magi, you know, and each, 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 for each meeting, they, they, somebody would suggest, well, okay, why don't you, why don't you pick a story for next time and be the main person telling the story, you know, you know, then we'll give you feedback and everything. So, and I had been chosen. So I decided I would do that. Um, Un, unknowing um, something about that story. Um, anyway, I stood up and, you know, we talked and had a little business stuff and I stood up and I, and I told the story and I was nervous about it because it's a, it's a challenging story to tell. It's so well written and it's so poignant. And anyway, I got through the story and at, at the very beginning, as I started, this gentleman uh, who was at the other end of a long table, we were always gathered around this one, in this one room, uh, uh, about a table that would hold about 16 people. And he, as soon as I began, he thought, I mean, he looked at, right at me and mumbled, oh boy loud enough that it could be heard. And I, I didn't pay attention to it because once I begin telling, I kind of zone out on you know, interference as I concentrate. Um, anyway, when I finished, the people around the table erupted in applause. And one of the women said, I love that story. That's the best telling of it I've ever heard. Wow. I almost, I almost <laughs> fell down. Um, the guy, who I won't even say his name, just stared at me. And, and Mary reached over and, and patted him on the arm. He always sat next to her and said, it looks like you have some, I forget the word she said now. Competition? I think, she, I think she may have said something like competition. And he just frowned. But um, that was one of the best nights of my life. <laughs> <laughs> because I did not know until that night that that was his premier piece. Oh, my. He, had, he was, had been telling stories for years and years and years. And he was a really good storyteller. He really was. He was a, he was a, a bit of a, he was a, he was a bit much, but he was an excellent storyteller. I, would, I have to give him that. And um, afterwards, he said to me, 
I liked your telling of the story. It's one of my favorites and left. And he left the meeting first of all the people. And Mary said, you don't believe it, but that's the story he chooses whenever he thinks he could win a contest. Oh. I said, oh, wow. And, and I said, oh, boy, no, no, no wonder his remark at the beginning. And she said, well, that, that was inappropriate of him. And, and I, I was actually glad that he said it out loud because he learned a lesson. <laughs> she said, you did that so well. <laughs> so it was, I was, I felt so glad. It was like, whoa, boy, you know, because I was very nervous about doing it, you know. And after, afterwards, I've done that. I've done that at three different festivals. And I, and it's, I always really enjoyed doing it. Wow. That's a that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like a success to make <laughs> to get you going, you know. <laughs> well, thank you for that one. Oh, for that, oh, you you're very welcome. It was uh, my pleasure. I I think we may be done. You think? Uh, we've been. Oh my gosh! Let me check the time. Fifty-four minutes, I think. Yeah. I have 55 and a half. Oh, okay. There you go. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, <laughs> I was looking forward to hearing another story from you, but well, another okay. time. Yeah. I'll just change, change the story I was going to tell you was about St. Stanislaus. <laughs> Believe it or not. Another, and, and another a, a real A Polish story. Right. <laughs> You've been listening to the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at EnlightenedRadio.org. We are independent community radio broadcasting from Bolivar, West Virginia, Martinsburg, West Virginia, and Hagerstown, Maryland. I'm Fanny Crawford. I'm Stasz Leokowski. And we're glad you've joined us today. Storytelling Hour offers our listeners a window into the world of telling by traditional and non-traditional tellers, encouraging you, our listening community, to share, preserve, and expand all of our stories. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for John Case and... Well, there's going to be... Uh, considerable roots music today. Um, uh, well, I have an automation program that decides what it is. <laughs> so um, all I can just say, it falls into a category. So that'll be fun. Anyway, thank you guys for great stories.